0: Well as as I just said as we prayed for Vanuatu and thank the Lord for Vanuatu um over the last 20 years or, or not 20 over the last 2000 plus years um, I heard someone pose these questions you know they're talking about has because uh, every you know again things just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse. well he said listen would you rather live now as a Christian or 500 years ago Would you rather live 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago? Would would you rather a 1,000 or 1,500? In other words, he said, you you look at the progress of the church and you look at the progress of of Christianity and um, it it is truly remarkable how much it's grown and how much it even continues to grow. Um, That has been, seems like that has been a constant. Um, Now, to be sure... It ebbs and flows, doesn't it? I mean, when you consider at one point England uh, was really kind of a missionary sending of the world, I mean, when you look at all the famous missionaries that went out, they went out from England. And now England is, is highly secularized. So there are ebbs and flows, to be sure. It's not perfect, uh, but overall, if you look at the, the net growth, it, it's been pretty remarkable. The other thing that I was thinking about that is it has been well not fairly constant, but it, it has been most assuredly a constant from day one uh, was persecution uh, from the stoning of Stephen to the present day, it seems as though uh, all the other all the other factors that have come and gone or that, that vary that seem that this thing seems to be the one Universal constant when it comes to the gospel and when it comes to the church is persecution. And James is writing to a group of churches, a group of Christians who were in fact experiencing persecution. We saw that earlier in the Bible or earlier in this book. But now he comes and he writes to them specifically to do two things I think. The first thing he wants to do is he wants to encourage them. <clears throat> it's important uh, when someone is undergoing persecution that it becomes very discouraging. Uh, one of the things, if you remember uh, Pastor James Coates in Canada, and when he was, he was uh, imprisoned uh, for having the audacity uh, to, to, to refuse to bow to Caesar, um, I, I sent him a letter. I don't know if he ever got it. I know they were encouraging. He probably got tens of thousands of letters, but it's important that that they that they receive those things. They be encouraged. Voice of the Martyrs frequently has opportunities for you to write letters to to Christians around the world who are being um, who are being persecuted. It's, it's a tremendous encouragement for them to receive to receive letters. Well, it's, it was no different here. James wanted to write to them and encourage them in their time of of, of persecution. But he wanted to not just encourage them, but he wanted to exhort them. And usually with with encouragement comes exhortation, some things that he would not just encourage them, but exhort them to begin doing. So if you would uh, open your Bibles to James chapter 5, we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 12, and then come back and, and take a look at them a little more closely. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and your clothes are moth eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth, and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until he receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. And you've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. But the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes, and you know me know, so that you will not fall under judgment. The first thing he, he does is he encourages them, and he does that in a, in an unexpected form. Usually, when we think of encouragement, we think of him. We'd be writing, you know, "Hang in there, uh, you're going to be okay. God's in control." But it's interesting that that he encourages them very much in the line of uh, the prophetic tradition. Uh, if you 're to read many of the the, the Old Testament prophets um, you'll you 'll see sections in in these prophets where they address pagan nations, for instance uh, the, 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 the prophet will address Babylon and give a prophetic woe against Babylon. Well, Babylonians are not there they 're not present uh, there's no one you know taking this letter to Babylon and standing in the middle of you know, the Babylon capital. No, the, the, God would be, would speak prophetic words to these pagan nations who, in most cases, were oppressing them and persecuting them as an encouragement to them to to, to, to know that that God's justice is coming, so to speak. And so James, very much in that tradition... Uh, by the way, we have one whole Bible, one whole prophetic Bible, or a book of the Old Testament, Nahum, which was to Nineveh. Nineveh didn't, they didn't run copies and send it door to door. No, this was to encourage Israel. And in the same tradition, James writes to encourage them, but he encourages them by telling them what God is going to soon do to the very people who were persecuting them. The first thing he says is he says, judgment is coming. Look at verse 1. He says, come now, you rich people. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. He says to encourage his people, judgment is coming, and later on we find out it 's coming soon, not later but soon. So he says, first of all, judgment is coming, and that, that is certain, but not only coming but it 'll be consuming. Look at verses two to three now again, this is very much uh, very, very if, if you read any of the prophets this just reeks of prophetic speech." The, the point of this is not literalism. It, it, in other words, when he says your wealth has rotted, he's not saying literally it, it rots. This is to, to, this is to paint a word picture, an image, a symbol. He says your wealth has rotted, your clothes are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded. Do we have any chemical chemists in here? Do, do, do gold does gold corrode? It cankered. Yeah, I, I think of it. Does it canker? Does gold canker? Does gold corrode? No. See, these are not. This is not meant to be literal. Symbol. Symbolic language is okay in the Bible when it's in, when it's intended to be symbolic. It's okay to interpret the Bible symbolically when it, when the intent is symbolic. He says your your gold and silver corroded. And, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up treasure in the last days, but what is what's the overall image that you get when you read this? Is this is audience participation time. It's not good. This is these are miseries. What is it? What is he? What is the focus of the miseries going to be on? The very thing that they were taking such great pride in, and, and that, as we're going to find out, and, and was a source of their persecution, was their wealth. And what's the picture that he gives of their wealth? It's fleeting, it's just this, this comprehensive corruption and corrosion. You, you, get the, you get the idea that all of these things will be taken away from them. These things are going to be worthless in the day of misery, and they're going to be taken away from you. Just this this consuming, in fact, he says, they will be the very things that will set your flesh on fire. Just the the consuming nature of the miseries that God is going to bring on them. But third, it's certain. Look at the verbal tenses of verses 2 to 3. What does he say? Your wealth has rotted. It's past tense. Your gold and silver are corroded. In other words, he's talking, about, he's talking as if these things have already occurred, but they haven't yet. And again, this, is, this, is, this was a classic way of saying that your judgment is so certain that we can speak of it as, as, as if it has already occurred he says to this group he encourages his people by saying their judgment, their miseries is coming it will be all consuming and it it is certain but fourth of all he says it will be commensurate what does commensurate mean? Appropriate to the situation, right. So these things are appropriate. Look at me at verse 4. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. This is, this is metaphorical language. The, the very pay that was withheld is crying out to God in terms of the injustice. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and indulged yourselves and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. It's like cattle that being cattle being fattened only to be eventually slaughtered. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Um in, in these verses we see we get a glimpse we can get a glimpse of what has been going on. What are some of the things we see? One of the things we see is that these workers and we low we're gonna find out in verse seven that the ones who are being persecuted are brothers and sisters, the Christians. And what does he say? They would go out. They were day laborers, and, and day laborers, even to this, even to this day, when I was driving RTD, I would, I would one of my one of my trips, my bus would be full of these guys, these homeless guys, and they'd go down to this ready temp place that was down on Colfax, and they'd sign in, and and uh, those people who, who uh, those companies that needed day laborers would go down, and they'd say, we need five guys to hold signs, you know, the slow stop signs. They go out, they do that all day, they come. At the end of the day, they get a check. They get paid for the work for that day. Imagine. And, and, and by the way, that was very much what was going on here. Remember, they were exiles to a large extent. They didn't own their own land. Uh, they, they, were, they were day laborers or laborers. Can you imagine the fact that you were relying on today's pay in order to feed your family at night? And you work a long, hard day in the field. And you come to get your check. And the boss says, no checks today. How would you feel? I'd be angry. What does James say earlier? Remember earlier? What does he say? Careful about your anger. We see in verse 6. Look to me at verse 6. These people you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous who does not resist you. Um, what's going on here? Um, keep, keep, keep your marker here. Let me give you a let me give you a suggestion. Turn it back to Deuteronomy chapter twenty four. Deuteronomy twenty four. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you get to the table of contents, you've gone too far. You need to come back. Deuteronomy 24. Is everybody there? Let's start in verse 15. Well, actually, was in keeping with me, Danny, 14. Do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Whether one of your Israelite brothers or one of the resident aliens in the town in your land. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets. Because he is poor and depends on them. Otherwise he will cry out to the Lord against you and you will be held guilty. Now some people say, well this, this was... God only held Israel accountable to this. Well, in the near future we're going to address this whole issue of the law. and We see that God held the other nations to the same standards. He says, you are to pay him his wages. Each day. Now, go back to verse 6, though. He says, Do not take a pair of grindstones or even the upper millstone as security for a debt because that is like taking a life as security. So I take it in James when he says you've, you've murdered, you murder them, you take their life, you kill them, not literally but somehow even through the uh, through the corrupt court system or through their own power they were taking away the ability for people to to earn a living they were taking away the very thing that they made their living with one of the many Horrible things about the response to COVID was that our government took away, they seized people's opportunity to make, their, to make a living. And God's word says you'd never do that. Even if there's a legitimate debt, you don't take away their means of making a living. So they're being oppressed. They weren't getting paid. And probably through some kind of either oppressive court system or through their, their, own, their, their, their personal power and influence they were withholding pay, and, and they were taking away these people's ability to feed their families and pay the bills. And in fact, he says, in, in light of this, miseries are certainly coming upon you. Then he exhorts them, and although even the exhortation, could, you could say, is, is, is really a form of, Of encouragement. Therefore, that's important, isn't it? In light of what I've just said, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. Now, if the brothers and sisters were not involved in verses 1 and 6, why would he say, therefore? Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until he receives the early and late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, because the Lord's coming is near. Now we need to deal with a couple of things before we get back into the, the verses. And the first thing is that there are two. There's a, there's a word that's repeated three times and a phrase that's repeated twice. A word that is repeated three times is patience. So, verses 7 through 12, the main idea in in his exhortation to them is to be patient. The second thing, though, is the coming of the Lord. And this is the thing that we need to address. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. And then in verse 8, strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Now, here's what, here's what typically happens. What typically happens is when someone reads about... The phrase "The coming of the Lord or the lord 's coming, they automatically think what? The second coming, what we call the second which is really kind of a misnomer, um, but the second coming in terms of judgment day, right? So whenever we see the lord 's coming it 's the judgment day. Well, every time the, the phrase the Lord comes or the Lord is coming, it doesn 't always refer to second to, to the second coming. Let me just give you a couple of examples. And turn with you let me uh, Matthew chapter 16. In other words, we can't assume every time we read the Bible that we see the words we can't just automatically assume it means the second coming. We have to do a little more than that. Matthew chapter 16 Verse 28. Truly, I tell you, Jesus is talking to his disciples and, 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 the, and a crowd. Um, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. There are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, What does he just say? He says, some of you will still be alive when he comes in his kingdom. Which implies what? That some or most of them will be dead. Some of you will still be alive. So this coming that he's talking about has to be at least far enough away that some will die. Some will be dead, if not most will be dead. But not so far away, because some of them are still going to be alive. This cannot be the second coming, because he says there will still be some who are alive. Now, some have posited, well, the next chapter he's talking about the transfiguration. Again, there's a problem. There's a problem of saying it's the second coming, because you have people who are still alive. You have problems if you say it's the transfiguration, because there are, why would he say in event, six days from now... If I were to say to you, six days from now, some of you will still be alive. Just want you to know that. Some of you will still be alive. Plus, it's hard for him to come again if he hasn't even left. He hasn't even left at this point. This coming can't be the second coming. Uh, Turn back to Matthew 10. Matthew 10, as he's giving his disciples, he's sending out the twelve, the apostles. He's giving them their instructions. In verse 23, says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to another. For truly I tell you, you will not have gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Who is he talking? Is he talking to to us? Is he talking to us? No. Who is he talking to? His disciples. He's talking about them. And what does he say to them? You will not finish going through the towns of Israel before... The Son of Man comes. Here, here's the problem. We get in our minds, we get in our heads that this is always talking about the second coming, so we have to somehow change other things to make that fit. And, and you'd, be surprised, you'd be amazed at both Matthew 6.28 6, Max 10.23, what they do to, to try to make it fit the second coming. Rather than just taking the text, why can't we just take the text for what it says? I, I, there, there have been probably there have been several things that over the last mm, twenty, thirty years that that I have wrestled with exegetically because of the tradition that told me what particular verses meant, and I never felt comfortable with the way that we exegeted the text, but, but. My interpretive conclusion made me feel good, but I never felt right about how the text was treated. I finally came to the point where I said, I'm, I'd much rather live with interpretive angst. I'd much rather live with an interpretation that says, I'm really not sure how this happened, but I, I'm, I have to exegete the passage appropriately. Back to James. So he says the coming of the Lord. And what does he say in verse 8 about the coming of the Lord? He said it is near. The coming of the Lord, he said, is near. Now here's what... It's relatively near, they say. If this is the second coming, was the second coming near to them? Then they say, well, near is relative. It's, really, it's near in the sense that it's, um, it's relative to time and place. It's, it's not going to be indefinite. Again, it's amazing the, 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 the way that I, I read some of the commentators and how they, how they try to, to get around near. So they they make up their minds that this coming is the second coming. So now I have to change what near means. If near does not mean near, what does far mean? You, you see what happens when we we start playing those games. He says the Lord's coming is near. Now if you'd never read Tim LaHaye, you've never read Hal Lindsey. When you read this, what would you what would you believe? It's near, not far. Why would you be patient for an event that you will never, ever, ever see or experience? Now, people say the, the, the early church lived in the, the, with the expectation of the imminent return of Christ, and I said yes and no. Yes in terms of what does imminent mean? Well, again, we redefine these words. Imminent means that there's no other things that have to happen before His coming comes again. We don't use imminent that way. If you ordered pizza, and an hour later, you still don't have it, you call and they said, it's coming soon. It'll be there soon. He's near. He's at your door. What would you expect? 20 years from now? 100 years from now, the pizza shows up? Guys, we have to be careful that we don't make up our minds what these things mean and then try to change words to make it fit. He says to them, now, the first part, I have no problem, he says, be patient until the Lord's coming. Again, it begs the question, why should they be patient for an event that was not even going to occur for 2,000 years? If, if he, he, there was ways he could have said that. Be patient, because in the end, justice will be done. Although it begs the question, why should they be patient? But the clincher is verse 8. Again, he says, the Lord's coming is near. Why can't we just accept that at face value? Why do we have to figure out a way to make this fit a second coming? Do I know what the nature of his coming was? No. Some have suggested the... The uh, the fall of Jerusalem, because we do know that the early church was persecuted by the Jews solely. The Roman persecution didn't come till later, and Josephus and other historians know when Jerusalem fell, um, per- Jewish persecution ceased almost immediately. For obvious re- for obvious reasons, they were basically wiped off the map. All I know is he told them, you be patient, you be encouraged, because their miseries are coming and I'm coming soon. There was some way that God came and intervened and stopped the persecution that was going on in their midst. That's why they were to be patient. In fact, he gives three examples. So if, if we want to change the what near means, it's a relative nearness, or near really doesn't mean near, then what does far mean? Then we have to, then we have to figure out why does he give these examples because what's the first example he gives when he says I want you to be patient he says I want you to be like the farmer see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains you also must be patient now does a farmer the the, the the image here of the farmer is he's patient for the rains and the implication is what He's ultimately going to receive his crops. He says, you need to be like the farmer. You need to be patient. You're going to receive your crops in essence. By the way, he says, the Lord is at the door. I don't know what you want to do with that. Patient, like the farmer who's patient. And yes, sometimes the crops don't come in as quickly as you need them to, or as you want them to. But you need to be patient. The late rains will come, and you will bring in your crop. In fact, he says in verse 9, while you are waiting, while you are patient, do not turn on each other. Do not complain about one another. It's interesting to me. I think I mentioned this last week. When a church goes through persecution, oftentimes, it, 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 I think because of the stress, um, they, they turn on each other. There's conflict. He says, in the meantime, don't complain so you will not be judged. Look, he's standing at the door. These are time markers. Be like the farmer. Be patient. You, he will come. Their miseries are coming upon them. Number two, he gives the example of prophets. Verse 10, says, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. Why would he use prophets as an example? In fact, he says they spoke in the Lord's name. I take that to mean that that's what these, in fact, these people were doing. And he's saying, just like the prophets who continue to speak in the name of the Lord, despite persecution, you too be steadfast. Keep speaking from the Lord. And in fact, um, probably James, who relies so much on Jesus and, and the Beatitudes, um, Matthew five eleven through 12, he says, You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. (laughs) He said, rejoice and be glad. He says, you're in good company. The prophets who came before you were also persecuted, but they remained faithful and steadfast. And in fact, they were vindicated. Third, he said, in your patience, an example of Job. Look at verses 11 and 12. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You've heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. Did Job see the outcome of what God did in his life, in the afterlife, or while he was still living? While he was still living. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. In fact, turn to Job. Job 1. He says, I I want you to endure like Job, because Job was faithful, and he experienced the Lord's compassion and mercy. Job, we we see his faithfulness. Job chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. No, I'm sorry. Not 90. What, what am I. Is it, is it 20? Yeah, 20. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. He maintained his integrity. In fact, uh, 9, he, again, 9. No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. He said, be like Job, endure with integrity. He, he experienced the Lord's mercy and, and compassion. Maintain your integrity. Verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes. Your no mean no, that you will not fall under judgment. He says, I want you to be encouraged. I want to exhort you to be patient because I'm coming. I'm going to bring miseries upon those people who have been persecuting you. And I'm coming. And my coming is near. I'm at the door. Hang in there. I, I was thinking about that speech. Uh, George Bush at nine eleven. 9-11 when he was not standing on the rubble. I can't remember exactly the words, but he gave the sense of, we're coming. We're coming. By the way, um, just to give you kind of a, a hermeneutical clue, how do we determine, because there, there are different comings, and every time it says the Lord's coming doesn't refer to the second coming. How do we determine How do we know which one is it? Let let me give you a couple of hermetical clues. How do I know between a first century parousia, parousia is the the word for coming, and say what we normally think of in terms of second coming judgment? First century coming has time markers, near, soon. Book of Revelation, by the way, says, I'm writing these things, the things that are going to happen soon. Again, if you decide you want... (laughs) Commentators, it's amazing what they do with the word "soon." Soon, near this generation, all these things—these are time markers that 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 what I call their time limiters. They they place a boundary around. We're not quite sure when exactly it happened, but we know that it was it was temporal within that time frame. First century comings have time markers. They're usually directed now. Usually, they're directed to specific individuals or groups. Uh, Revelation three eleven is a classic one. When Jesus is talking, when Jesus talks to the church in Philadelphia, he says, "I will keep you from the tribulation that is coming upon the entire land." Who's the you? Is the you you? No, you're not the you. The church in Philadelphia was the you. So we interpret first, we apply later. <laughs> He said to the church, I will keep you from the tribulation that is coming upon the land. So, that tribulation coming upon the land, it it is bound by the the life of that church. First century comings don't have any any, um, mention of resurrection or disillusion, disillusion, universal disillusion. When we see second coming texts... Universally, they talk about resurrection. First Corinthians 15, Philippians 3, First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, First, uh, First Corinthians 15. First century, they don't they not include any language about resurrection or disillusion. So that's how you can you can usually tell. Please just don't, we can't just make up our minds ahead of time what this thing means and then try to make it fit. Just read the text for what it is and say, I'm going to live with interpretive uncertainty for the fact that I've, that I've accurately exegeted the text. He says to them, be patient in your suffering and your persecution. Their miseries will come upon you. It is certain. It will be all-consuming. And you will be rescued from what you are in, 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 enduring. And some say, well, we don't, we don't know historically if that ever happened or not. Well, we don't need to know, do we? We don't need external evidence to know if it really happened or not. What do we believe? The Bible. That's what I'm saying. We, we, we interpret the Bible. We have to be careful that we don't, we don't depend on external evidence or historical validation. When it's there, it's great. It is meant to, not to determine our interpretation, but to... Fortify our, our our interpretation. These people were delivered from the, 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 the persecution and the oppression that they were experiencing. And he's told them, Be patient, because it's coming. What about us? Has he promised us that his coming is soon? No. No, he hasn't. It may. It may not. We may have another 2,000, 3,000 years. We may not have two or three hours. (laughs) We don't know. We need to remain... Application is, while they had a specific promise of a kind of Lord's coming that would deliver them from the oppression. We too, even though we don't have that, we, can, we need to remain patient and faithful. Uh, one of the past uh, VOM magazines had an article on this, and, and this was interesting at the very end. Here was the title. It was the, on, on the back page. If, you get, if you're reading those, the back page usually has a, like, from the editor. He says, "...will we take our place in God's chain of sacrificial servants and suffering witnesses. God gave us clear instructions about the work we must do to proclaim His gospel and make His His disciples. And then He told us that this mission, His mission, would succeed. The vision of all peoples worshiping God that we read in Revelation 7-9 is a current reality. So what God is doing and will accomplish is not in question. The only question is that of our faithfulness. We experience the question: Am I willing to pay the price of faithfulness to Christ as a daily choice? Our Lord told us to deny ourselves and take up our cross daily, because discipleship is not one of commitment, is not one not one commitment or action, but rather a repeated action we choose to make or not each day of our lives. Old Testament sacrifices were placed on the altar and in death stayed there. As New Testament sacrifices, we are living sacrifices, Romans 12.1. And we must place ourselves on the altar each morning, dying anew each day. I think this is much of what James is saying to them. Be patient, be steadfast, be faithful. Our ultimate example is Christ. But we also benefit from the examples of great men and women of God who have come before us creating an unbroken chain of faithful witnesses of God's truth since the beginning of time. They were not great because of their abilities and successes. Rather, their greatness was demonstrated by their service as bold witnesses despite opposition and suffering. They learned to die daily to their personal agendas in this world. Will we trust God enough to take our place among them? Christ taught that our light would shine brightly for Him in this dark world as we sacrificially serve Him and willingly suffer at the hands of our enemies. The stories of disciple-makers who came before us ask us the questions. How do we measure up? Will we take our place? Friend, I pray that you and I will be found faithful. And then I conclude with 1 Peter 4.16 If anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in that name. Let's pray. Father, as these people were enduring uh, insufferable persecution, defrauding, being defrauded and oppressed, um... Those who were um, unjustly defrauding them. And they could not even resist. They had no voice. They had no ability even to resist it. I can imagine the anger and the frustration and the discouragement, the disillusionment. How wonderful these words must have been to them. When they heard that the miseries were coming upon them and to be patient for the Lord is near. Father, may those words also be encouraging to us to be patient, to be faithful. For you are with us. And in fact, Lord, we don't know when you will come again. But like Job, and like the farmer, and like the prophets who have gone before us, may we trust in your steadfast love. May we be patient and endure suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. And I I pray that it would be for that and not anything else. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the clarity. We thank you for the encouragement. And that, Lord, you are active in your world today. We thank you and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join hands?